Greetings, everyone. This week's Torah portion is Bechukotai, the very last portion of the book of Leviticus. And as I mentioned in last week's class, I wanted to continue this on the themes that we were covering last time, which I don't want to try to repeat all the themes, but I'm sure we'll, uh, I welcome your questions anytime. And let's say a blessing. Baruch Ata Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher Kitshanu B'mitzvotav Betzivanu La'asok B'divrei Torah. Blessed are you, source of life, our God, who makes us holy with your mitzvot and has given us the mitzvah of engaging in the words of Torah. Um, before we, so we're going to launch right in. Barbara had questions from last week's class about, go ahead, Barbara, unmute yourself and ask. One question had to do with the Jubilee year and whether or not that's still practiced. Okay, so the short answer is, the Jubilee year is the is what happens at the end of every fifty every fiftieth year, uh, when which we didn't get to in our portion last week. The Shemitah year, the seventh year, is practiced in Israel today, though not in a uh, nationwide fashion, but among certain factions of the community there. The um, Jubilee year, which is supposed to be every 50th year, has not been practiced, nor is there evidence necessarily that it was even practiced in biblical times. We know that the Shemitah year was practiced in biblical times, right up into the period, like right up into the Roman period. Um, uh, but because uh, we have it, we have rec, we have, um, you know, accounts of that. We never have any accounts of the Jubilee year actually being observed. So we don't know whether it was a um, aspiration uh, or an actual um, practice. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's what I know about that. Uh, and what's your other question, Barbara? It has to do with the Shemitah and the nature of the letting go. Mm -hmm. So if people let go of their land, I was asking this last week, and um, it went in a different direction. When people let go of things, what is the extent of the letting go? Do they really let go of it, or do they reclaim the things that they say that they're letting go of? It's, they, it's their lease. They don't own the land but they have a lease from God on the land. Right. It's called, the fancy word is, uh, well, it doesn't matter. What they lease is not the land itself, which belongs to God. Well, their lease is for the produce that that land will produce. That they own, that's their possession during the six years. In the seventh year, they do not possess the produce of the land. It's yeah. everybody's. Mm -hmm. Then in, in the next cycle begins, they resume owning the produce of the land. It's the same as the Shabbos cycle. 
for six days, we work, we own stuff, we make stuff, we have stuff. On the seventh day, the Torah says, you, it's not, you employ people, you use, you have your farm animals. On the seventh day, everyone who works for you rests. Your farm animals don't labor because you don't own them. You're, you know, so it's the same concept as Shabbos, but for the entire land in the sabbatical year. Does that answer your question? Yeah, it does. Oh, great. Great. Um, and the key there for us to grasp, again, from um, our, our worldview that people can own land and derive any pleasure or profit that they want from that land because they own it is that the biblical understanding is completely different. No one can own the earth, period. What you can do is by the grace of God, lease the earth and own its produce. But if you own its produce unjustly, you lose your lease, you go into exile. So that even the land, even the produce that you produce, that's yours, you are required by biblical law to share it annually with the poor, the stranger, the widow and the orphan, and to give, a, um, give some of it a tithe to God. In other words, so that the the um, holy, the um, um, institutions of um, the, the holy institutions, the, the temple, have what they need to be supported so that, yes, you own the produce, but you're taxed, as it were, you are obliged to share it, even in those six years. If there is no justice, if there's no equity, if there's no fundamental understanding that the least among us have to also be able to live with dignity, you're also not fulfilling the um, understanding the, of, of how this land, of how a steward of the land is supposed to behave. Um, so there are many checks, even on our owning the produce of the land uh, that we have to fulfill in order to remember to create a holy society in which the divine presence can dwell. Um, Sylvia, your hand was up. I don't, did you uh, see the little video and that Rabbi Foreman did this past week? No, I did not. So you I, recommend I, I hope you did because I don't remember that much of it. But what I do remember, because he was talking about why is it that we think that Shavuos has something to do with the giving of the Torah, because it really doesn't say anything like that. <laughs> but he, and so I can't remember why he said it was, but he did go into uh, the 49 days and the fact that, uh, you know, Shabbos is the seventh day, that the Shemitah year is the seventh year, that Seven times seven is 49, and therefore the Jubilee year, which is the 50th year, and that's the counting of the Omer. He put all these things together, 
And he had a really great sense of humor about why the rabbis did this, uh, why they added that. I, but and I, it's funny that I can't remember that part. Well, it's, it's actually quite um, elaborate. Uh, mm -hmm. And I've taught about that before. And next week, uh, next week will be in June and we'll be leading right up to Shavuot. So uh, let's talk about that next week, okay? Okay, so maybe, so look, so I think you had, you belong to Aleph, right? Oh yes, I'm gonna watch it. I don't, so of course they cut, they always cut me off. <laughs> and I'm watching a really good video. They want me to join. That's yeah, right. So, yeah. Okay, so I, I, will, I will, I'll watch it and uh, yeah. incorporate. But what I do wanna say that's pertinent to the counting today is that interestingly, Shavuot is the, which in English is called, which means weeks, W-E-E-K-S. Um, uh, and comes from the word, and the word for week in Hebrew is Shavua, which comes from the Hebrew for seven, Sheva, right? That's where the word comes from, the seven day week. Uh, so a week is a Shavua. And it says, you shall count off seven, seven, seven weeks. And on the 50th day is a festival called Shavuot, where you bring the first fruits to um, uh, the priest and offer your gratitude, ah. right? Now and, I'm remembering. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And here we count off seven sevens of years and in the 50th year, it's called the Jubilee year. Um, and uh, next week, I'll, uh, there are deep connections there, uh, which we can look into of, this of what this 50, just like the 50th is just like the, yes. Oh, so we'll talk about that next time, okay? And now I'm remembering because it's the agricultural connection that you talked about two weeks ago. Right, right. Right, because when Shavuot comes, you bring the first fruits of your land in this, and, you, and there's a declaration in the book of Deuteronomy that you make saying, I was a wandering Aramean and you brought me to this land and here I am. And so I'm offering my gratitude to you. Right. Yeah, that's, that's uh, yeah. very connected to the idea of the land is not ours. And we're very not agricultural good. anymore. Hmm? And we're not agricultural anymore. Well, we're not agricultural anymore, but the idea, but but again, my thrust these weeks is that we need to reimagine what it means to be so oh, integrated in your life with the land that feeds you. Um, that something critical that we have become too too disconnected from, uh, so that we. Lou, we can't, so that we, in the case of Torah study, we miss a, lay, a, a crucial layer of depth of what the Torah is trying to teach us about living humbly and uh, um, uh, in, in connection to our, uh, our land. The, any other questions right now? Uh, Blaze? You got on mute. Thank you. This may not be relevant to anything particular that's in your 
choice of what you want to teach today, but I wanted to ask anyway. Um, I noticed that every different every week of the Omer, there's a different theme. Uh, and I'm wondering if this is connected in any way to the counting, to what's in the Torah, to, yeah. So uh, the short answer is no. Um, the short answer is that the themes of each of the week of the Omer are a much later innovation and interpretation of the Omer from the Middle Ages based on uh, Jewish mystical practices. And so a whole other, once you're disconnect, once we're no longer, I would say, embedded in the rhythm of the harvest, of the, of the cycles of growth, um, additional interpretations of what this counting represents develop over literally the centuries. And while we're in exile, the uh, land-based understanding of the Omer recedes and new spiritual interpretations emerge. One thing that I know we can connect them all through is this through theme of refining our souls and our actions so that our baser impulses of uh, greed and control and exploitation, which reside in every single life force <laughs> person, um, are, are mitigated and uh, transformed so that we can meet God as, you know, so that we don't confuse our own power with godly power. That theme is consistent. The only way to receive the Torah on Shavuot is to get our egos out of the way, right? And so the mystical process of getting ready for receiving the Torah is a process of refining the attributes in ourselves that will allow us to be open to that reception. Um, interesting. Wow, thank you, thank you. That was really beautiful. Yeah, I, thank I, you for asking. Uh, Marcus? I, <clears throat> uh, may, I ask, may I ask one more question about last week's Parsha? Sure, of course. Uh, in my grappling with the Hebrew, it seemed to me, and I want you to correct me if I'm wrong, that the, the way it's languaged, um, it's not merely that we let the land rest, we don't do something to the land, um, but that the land is spoken of in a way that echoes the way that we rest, that the land is treated in the way it's languaged in Hebrew as a, as a being, as a living being, as a sentient being, if you will. Um, we rest on Shabbat, the seven, the land has its own, as it were, almost volition. As a being, it rests. That's how I read the Hebrew. It didn't seem to be languaging it as if it is a thing. And that's so wonderful if that's the case. But am I wrong? No, I think you're right. 
I think that's a beautiful way of expressing it. And we did talk last time about the act about here in Bihar, the word for there are two words for the sabbatical year. One is Shabbaton, which means a Sabbath, like Shabbat. And the other is Shemitah, which is how it's referred to here. And Shemitah comes from the word to let go. So we let it go. We let the land be. Uh, just as we release debts, we let them go. So, so a beautiful translation of the sabbatical year from the Hebrew Shemitah is that we, we let it go. We release it. We give up control over it. So yeah, I like the way you said that about the land having its own. The land needs its sabbaticals just like we do in order to retain its uh, productivity. Thank you. So my friends, um, I, what I wanna share with you now is, um, I, I, I didn't quite, you know, I, my mind is in many directions, but I think I can pull this off. Um, I wanna go back to uh, just one sec. Um, I want to go back to, uh, let's see, first I want to share with you uh, David uh, Seidenberg's article that we were looking at last time. Let me just do, no, let me share Safaria. Okay, I'll do that in a moment. I guess what I want to do is go to um, Ellen Davis's book, which we, I've been referring to for several weeks in Leviticus. Remember, it's called Scripture, Culture, and Agriculture, an Agrarian Reading of the Bible. She quotes Wendell Berry a lot in this uh, collection. And in discussing the land and the farmer, She points out that for the, for the biblical mindset, as she relates it through the agrarian writings of Wendell Berry and others, the farmer and the farmer's field are inseparable because the farmer draws his or her life from the field and understands that and then has to give back to the field that which will give the field its life and that the symbiotic relationship, the stewardship in the, la in the language of the Torah and of agrarian, uh, agrarian language too, the stewardship of the land is one of a completely an inseparable relationship. When you think of indigenous people who are removed from their land, who have to leave their land and go to the city in order to earn enough money, you know, all the things that are happening constantly. Um, and that somehow they wither and die. When you read about the Trail of Tears 
when the, the, the native peoples who were forced, the Cherokee and others who were forced to walk to Oklahoma from their land and they couldn't exist without their land because they didn't exist without their land. Their, their relationship was, they were part of that system. This is something that I barely understand in my body, right? I'm just, I have to be perfectly clear about that, but it's something that we have to, that it's important for us to wrap our minds around. Here's a, um, uh, a poem by Wendell Berry. Sowing the seed, my hand is one with the earth. Hungry and trusting, my mind is one with the earth. Eating the fruit, my body is one with the earth. It's this perspective that the Bible, the Torah is coming from. Um, and so, okay, so I wanted to share that. And then I wanted to go back to what I was explaining last time, which is that um, ah, finally, okay, clicked into my head. The question that uh, a couple of, that both David Seidenberg, who I was quoting last week, and Ellen Davis uh, are addressing is there's a question in the Bible, if God gives Abraham the land, here you go, I'm giving you the land, but then tells Abraham in chapter 15, but your descendants are going to have to be strangers in a strange land for 400 years, and I will bring them up from there and redeem them and bring them to this land. It's like, why? That was the interesting question that I wanted to think about. Why does, why does that have to happen? Why can't you just get here, here? Here's the land that I'm going to show you. Now, show the world, as we were saying last time, how this is supposed to be done. How, a human, how human beings are supposed to un, uh, uh, work the land in a holy way so that uh, justice and prosperity and peace and um, fairness can, can happen in the land. And why do you have to go down to slavery? It appears that the biblical authors uh, um, who created this sort of meta story of the Jewish people, this mythic history, um, want to make the point because the language gets used over and over that just as God redeemed us from servitude, it is our task to redeem each other from uh, suffering and servitude. And the Hebrew word is goel, ga'al, baruch ata Adonai, ga'al Yisrael. Blessed are you, uh, Adonai, who redeems us, the people of Israel, from slavery. And that word ga'al comes up over and over in our portion today. Um, and I'm gonna share the screen and show you what I mean.
Okay, here we are in chapter 25, which is last week's portion, but the two are so connected. Um, and it says, if one of your kin is in straits and has to sell part of a holding, the nearest redeemer go alone. Hakarov elav will will redeem shall come and redeem what that relative has sold. Okay, so the word gaal gaal. And if any party has no one to be redeemer, ishki lo yelo goel, but prospers and acquires enough to redeem with kadei geulato. The years since its sale shall be computed and the difference shall be refunded to the party to whom it was sold so that the person might return to their holding. Um, so what's going on here? Oh, um, and throughout the land that you hold, you must provide for the redemption of the land. Okay, I'm going to try to explain this. In the sabbatical year, um, or in, in the course of the 50 years of the Jubilee, everyone has been granted a land holding. Um, and um, that land holding is not their land that they own. Remember, it's the land that God has leased to them so they can enjoy the produce of the land. But what happens if someone falls on hard times and has to uh, sell their, their leaseholding to someone else? It is their fellow Israelites' job to come up with, in this case, the funds in order to redeem the land for them so that they can continue to dwell on it the mutual responsibility among all Israelites and it is to redeem, especially in each clan, is to redeem the land for one another, uh, just as God redeemed us from slavery. So our job in order to be a holy people is to remember that we were redeemed and we have to redeem each other. And this explanation, as Ellen Weaver says, continues through the second half of this chapter of, of Bahar. Ki yamuch achicha. Yamuch means is brought low when your kin is in straight. Biblical GoFundMe. Exactly, Jerry. Um, so the first level of losing your land is that you have to sell your holding but someone is able to redeem it for you. Of course, if no one can redeem it for you, what was sold shall remain with the purchaser until the Jubilee. In the Jubilee year, it shall be released so that the person returns to their holding. So if you don't have a redeemer, God is your redeemer, just like God redeemed us from slavery. So that if nothing can happen over the 50 years, it's, you still hold the lease, even though 
you had to give it up. And in the 50th year, it is restored to you and you can start over. Then the text explains to us that there's another level of degradation. If your kin being in straits, if your kin is brought low and they come under your authority and are held by you as though resident aliens, let them live by your side. Ger vitoshav. Ger is a stranger or an alien. We were strangers in the land of Egypt, meaning we were resident aliens there and God redeemed us from there with a strong arm and an outstretched hand. So let's say you, you lose everything and you become a member of someone else's household, like a resident alien, then the Israelites must let them chai, live with you. You cannot exact advanced or accrued interest. You can't, they, they live with you. They're under your, they're under your, um, um, uh, they, don't, they don't own anything, but they're under, your, they're under your household. You have to treat them as such. Um, you can't dun them or charge interest. Why? Because I, yod heh vav your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan to be your God. So once again, if we want to do, if we want, our goal is to be like God, being that we're made in God's image, we have to behave that way. God brought us to this land and now we have to, uh, we have to live as such. And then it says, an even worse circumstance If your kin under you continue in straits and must be given over to you, you cannot subject them to the treatment of a slave. They remain with you as a hired or bound laborer, in other words, an indentured laborer, and they shall serve with you only until the Jubilee year. Then they, along with any children, shall be free of your authority, and they shall go back to their family and return to their ancestral holding. Why? For they are my servants whom I freed from the land of Egypt. They may not give themselves over into servitude. Lo yimachru. They cannot sell themselves into slavery. Um, you shall not rule over them ruthlessly. You shall fear your God. Um, and then I just want to get to the... Uh, Final verse of this uh, chapter, where it says, where it's continuing to discuss that in the Jubilee year, if you have come under someone else's authority um, early in the Jubilee cycle, you the cost is but you calculate the years of produce uh, for those however remaining years, whether they are many or few. Uh, 
you shall pay back for the redemption in proportion to the purchase price. There's a whole, it's very, it's, it's, it's detailed, but it's not that complicated. You figure out how many years of produce, you don't own the land, you own the produce. And if you can, if they can redeem themselves because they have a wealthy relative who can pay back for the produce that now you will not collect because you're giving the land back to them, fine. If not, then in the Jubilee year, God redeems them. As it says, for it is to me that the Israelites are servants. They are my servants whom I freed from the land of Egypt. I, your God, yod Um, So it appears we needed to go down to Egypt so that we could experience redemption by God. So that when we came to the land, we would know what it means to redeem our, our fellow Israelites. Um, and uh, uh, it would appear that the experience of, of being in Egypt was a necessary um, uh, God deemed it necessary so that the Israelites would understand that, as it were, we belong to God. And as such, we have to, we have to behave in such a way that's godly. I mean, I've said this in many, many different ways. Um, one, of the, the, one of the important things to do here to connect the land to the people is to understand this verse. The land must not be sold beyond reclaim, in other words, in perpetuity. For the land is mine. You are but resident aliens with me, Gerim Vitoshavim. So, just as and throughout the land that you hold, you must provide for the redemption of the land. Okay, I'm gonna stop sharing now. I'm not saying this as clearly as I want to, um, but I hope uh, um, the thrust of what I'm saying can get across, which is that By being slaves in Egypt, we come to understand um, what it means to be at the, um, under the ruthless thumb of human control. By being redeemed by God, we come to understand that uh, there is a higher purpose to human existence in living in harmony with each other and the land and in not trying to exert pharaonic control over the land. Now, Diane asks the crucial question, given the greediness of humans, did this ever work? The biblical answer is no. Because what happens 
we, towards the end of the biblical narrative, we are exiled to Babylonia. And we are exiled. And the, the theological explanation for that by the Israelites is that we didn't keep the Torah. And what does it mean to keep the Torah? And this is where I get back to the fact that here at the climax of Leviticus, Mount Sinai is invoked over and over. Um, it says that in the, in, in, in the chapter that follows Bihar, let me share the screen again. We get to chapter 26. If you follow my laws and faithfully observe my commandments, I will grant your rains in their season so that the earth shall yield its produce and the trees of the field their fruit. And your threshing shall overtake the vintage and your vintage shall overtake the sowing and you shall eat your fill of bread and dwell securely in your land. I will grant peace in the land and you shall lie down untroubled by anyone. I will give the land respite from vicious beasts and no sword shall cross, cross your land and you will, be, you will fight off your enemies. Your enemies shall fall before you by the sword and I will look with favor upon you and make you fertile and multiply you and I will maintain my covenant with you. You're, you shall eat old grain long stored and you shall have to clear out the old to make room for the new. I will establish my abode in your midst and I will not spurn you. I will be ever present in your midst. Remember, make me a sanctuary that I might dwell in your midst. I will be your God and you shall be my people. Who is our God? I, Yudhei am your God who brought you out from the land of the Egyptians to be their slaves no more. And here's this beautiful phrase, who broke the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. So this is about our, our own internal realization, manifestation of actualization of our human potential. Blaze says, Wendell Berry maintains that racism and the institution of slavery separated the people who called themselves owners of the enslaved, separated those people from the land as they did not work the land themselves and used the produce for profit. Thank you, Blaze. I am Yehovah, who brought you out from the land of the Egyptians to be their slaves no more, who broke the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. I just love that phrase. Liberation. Liberation is not, true liberation is not the capacity to do whatever you want. True liberation is being connected to the source of life and being the servant of the source of life. Go tell Pharaoh, let my people go, says Yotebafe, that they might be my servants in the wilderness. Um, but 
if you do not obey me and do not observe all these commandments, if you reject my laws and spurn my rules so that you do not observe all my commandments and you break my covenant, I will in turn do this to you. I will wreak misery upon you. And now we get into a chapter that describes the worst of human degradation um, with plagues, etc., etc. And I will break your proud glory. Geon uschem. Glory, Oz's strength. I will break your proud might. I will make your skies like iron and your earth like copper so that your strength shall be spent to no purpose. Your land shall not yield its produce, nor shall the lands of the trees yield their fruit. And I will, if you remain hostile towards me, I will go on smiting you sevenfold for your sins. I will loose wild beasts. And there's more and more and more until it says, it's just, it, you're gonna, I will make the land desolate. I'll scatter you among the nations and your land shall become a desolation and your cities a ruin. And then shall the land make up for its Sabbath years throughout the time that it is desolate and you are in the land of your enemies. Then shall the land rest and make up for its Sabbath years. Throughout the time that it is desolate, it shall observe the rest that it did not observe in your Sabbath years while you were dwelling on it because you did not let the land let go. You basically ran it into the ground just like one would run one's work. One, it says when you could, your workers pound your workers into the ground. Marcia says, it's such a fine line that we humans must walk between good pride and puffed head pride. Beautifully said. So the greediness Dan speaks of continually separates us from God's intention. Well said. Oh boy. And as for those of you who survive, I will cast a faintness into their hearts in the land of their enemies. The sound of a driven leaf shall put them to flight. We will live in abject anxiety and fear. Fleeing as though from the sword, even though none pursues us. Ugh. This is a poetic and hyperbolic description of the poles of possible human condition. One that lives in deep connection versus one that is, lives in, uh, in, in desperation, dislocation, and anxiety. Rob says, I like how the land is like a character in the story. It's humanized in a way. Yes, that goes right back to whose comment at the beginning of our class? Um, Marcus's, yes. Uh, and Blaze says, some people think they are in the land of their enemies and shoot them. Was it, is it others who are in the land of our enemies or is it us? And who, what is the enemy anyway? 
with no one pursuing, you shall stumble over one another as before the sword. Oh God, you will be consumed. Am I the enemy? Is the enemy within, says Blaze? And you will be heartsick over your iniquity. And you will confess that you have gone against my will and were hostile to me. And then I will remember, and I will remember the land. For the land shall be forsaken of them, making up for its Sabbath years by being desolate of them, while they atone for their iniquity. For the abundant reason that they rejected my rules and spurned my laws. Remember, what are these rules and laws? About how to live with the land. Those are the rules and laws. How to live with each other by releasing debts, releasing the land by not trying to assert permanent control. Even then, Joan, I'll read you in a sec. Yet even then, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not reject them or spurn them so as to destroy them, annulling my covenant with them. For I am Yodhei and their God. I will remember in their favor the covenant with the ancients whom I freed from the land of Egypt in sight of the nations to be their God. I, Yodhei for these are the laws, rules, and instructions that Yodhei established through Moses on Mount Sinai with the children of Israel. That is then reiterated at the very end of the next chapter. These are the commandments that Yodhei gave Moses for the Israelite people on Mount Sinai, end of the book of Leviticus. Joan said, may I insert a note of hope here? Poet Muriel Rukeyser tells us to use all your fears. We can learn to be in fear without letting it use or run us. We can learn by noting what we fear and let it focus our energy for the good. Thank you, Joan. Um, the portion itself has a note of hope in it, which is that Yodhevave is going to remember us. Remember, there's always another chance. That's, that's what it means. That's what the Torah tells us. There's always another chance. God is going to keep calling to us, waiting for us to recognize and then enact God's laws and rules. And we will come back and the land will rest. And then I actually believe that. Uh, it may not be in our lifetimes. It may not be for generations. But we'll have another, we'll, we will have another chance. But I also want to add that there are people doing this everywhere all the time. We're never, we're never full, we're never abandoned. That's the nature of Teshuvah. We always can turn and the creator will be there ready to welcome us again into the family of life. We poor, misbegotten, strange beings 
who deny, who, den who somehow deny and disconnect ourselves from the very fabric of our being. So our existential eternal challenge is also one that is unfortunately manifests, especially today as the extent of our exploitation and destruction uh, now redound against us uh, becomes clearer than ever. The, the, the basic understanding of the Torah is still the same. I wanna say one more thing, which fascinated me, which I did not know, share one more thing with you and then ask Deborah to sing a song. Um, David, Rabbi David Seidenberg points out that how, just to make it clear, how central this is to what it means to create holiness in the world, this very much land-based understanding of how we are to live in the world with the world, draw sustenance from the world and have it be sustainable, which requires a taming and a controlling of, of parts of our nature. Um, the entire Hebrew Bible ends with a book called the Book of Chronicles, which is a late volume in terms of the date of its composition that recounts the entire story. It's like a, um, a summary, uh, a recap from Adam to the end of the Torah, which is our Babylonian exile in 586 BCE. It seems a strong case that the Torah was compiled in exile because I imagine the, the, the Israelites, the, our ancestors, were trying to figure out what happened. Why are we disconnected? Um, by the rivers of Babylon, there we sat and wept as we, remembered our, uh, as we remembered Zion. Why did this happen to us? And one might suspect that a lot of the theology of the Bible might have been composed in exile as we tried to sort out what we did wrong. And the entire Torah ends with a quote from Jeremiah. I'm gonna share it with you. I, I, I never pay attention to the book of Chronicles. It's like, it's all the way at the end. <laughs> so let me just uh, open it up for you. See, there it is, all the way at the end. Here we go. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king. We are now in the year 586 BCE, which is the end, basically the end of the Torah narrative. And Zedekiah did was displeasing to the Lord his God. He did not humble himself before the prophet Jeremiah, who spoke for the Lord. 
And what did Jeremiah tell him? What was, the, what was Jeremiah's message? Now they describe how, the, how, how Jerusalem's destroyed, the temple's destroyed. Those who survived the sword were exiled to Babylon. And he, they became the Bukhatnezar's servants, that key word, until the rise of the Persian kingdom. All of this exile happened in fulfillment of the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. Quote, until the land paid back its Sabbath, as long as it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath till 70 years were completed. The Babylonian exile was 70 years long. And uh, the understanding of, so it would appear the, the understanding of why they were exiled is not only because they, is not because they didn't keep the Torah in some very general sense. It's because they didn't keep the Torah in its most specific and important sense which was they didn't let the land have its release time. They didn't live in harmony with the land that God had given them. And until they were exiled, just as we read in this week's portion, until the land could pay back all the sabbatical years it missed. And in the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, when the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah was fulfilled, that the land had had enough rest, the Lord roused the spirit of King Cyrus to issue a proclamation throughout his realm by word of mouth and in writing. Thus said King Cyrus of Persia, the Lord God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has charged me with building him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Any of you of all his people, the Lord his God be with you and let you go back up to your land. So I didn't even realize that the entire Hebrew Bible ends with this message of hope and return. It's quite beautiful and quite consistent with our Torah portion. It repeats our Torah portion, which I thought was absolutely fascinating. And I wanted to share with you, Marcus, and then we'll have Deborah sing a song. Oh, just the thought that uh, I think this is correct. The Torah itself ends beautifully in what some people think of as imperfection. It ends in canonized incompleteness. Now, I'm not speaking of the... Hebrew Bible as a whole, the Tanakh, Tanakh that you just referenced, but the part, the third, as it were, the Shlish, that's the Torah, right? It ends with Moshe not being able to enter the land and the longing incompleteness of return, whereas as a whole, the Tanakh does hahefech, the opposite, it almost, or at least it ends on the theme of make aliyah. It Whatever does. Way you want to take that. Marcus, well, actually, it's, I think it's parallel with the end of the Torah because Moses dies, but the children of Israel are about to enter the land. And then the entire Tanakh, the entire Hebrew Bible ends with they're about 
They just got permission to enter the land. So it's always about to happen. Is that fascinating? It's all canonized incompleteness. I think at some deeper level with intention. And it reminds me of our discussion as a group some weeks back when I was with you um, of the name of God itself. And I think your own best English rendering, which I love, which goes something like, because we don't want, because we know they're in ancient Hebrew, the, the two tenses were completeness. Perfect and imperfect. Right. Incompleteness, mm-hmm. not past, future, present. And so, uh, you know, the, the name of God itself, um, we don't want it to be static. So instead of I am what I am, or I will be what I will be, I think you rendered it wonderfully. I am becoming becoming. what I am becoming, something like that, as a beautiful paradox of the sort of, it's hard to put in words. Well said, let's let's hold on to that phrase, canonized incompleteness. It's so rich, thank you, Marcus. And uh, Joan- I I need to acknowledge, I believe I got it at Wesleyan from a, a rabbi professor when I was 19, but I'm not sure. Do you remember his name? A wonderful man named Roger Klein, um, a real, a deep mensch who ironically gives scholarly lectures at the Cleveland Symphony on Wagner, right before the Wagner performances. (sighs) Wonderful. Thank you. I knew him. Um, You knew him? Klein. Yeah. Yeah. Roger Uh, Klein. No, no. Roger Klein. Uh, we'll talk oh, about it. Sure. You, you went to Wesleyan. I, I did. I was just there this past weekend for my daughter's graduation, and it was it was mem- memory lane. And my oh. nephews. <laughs> I wouldn't say memory lane. I would say I was. I felt like I was hallucinating, actually. Um, yeah, very surreal. Sorry <laughs> to go into our Wesleyan stuff, but yeah. Thank you. Thank you. And Joan said it beautifully. Central literary theme of desire motivated most activity and drama. Our vast condition is incompleteness and becoming. Remember what Aviva Zornberg's um, title for her book about Genesis? Um, It's the beginning of desire. Beginnings of desire, yes, yes. So with all those beautiful words, wow. I want to, I know we're over a few minutes, but if you can say, stay, Deborah has a song that she quoted the chorus of that I'd love for us to hear because it feels also completely right on. It's also so incredibly simple after all oh, this. I can really share the lyrics. Stuff. Yeah, yeah, that'd be good. Okay, I'm going to share the lyrics. Uh, This too shall pass Sorrows nor comforts ever last When the heart is breaking And terror grips the throat Remember this too shall pass Sorrows nor comforts ever last When the sunset fades and the day is lost, remember 
this too shall pass. Sorrows nor comforts ever last. When the flesh is sagging and lions carve a wiser face, remember this too shall pass. Sorrows nor comforts ever last. All that we have is borrowed. Be prepared to let it go, remember. This too shall pass. Only love will last. Long after dust is dust and ashes ash. Stay tuned for sacred moments. Let them in to fill the holes. Remember, only love will last. Only love will last. Only love will last. We have to applaud. How beautiful. Thank you. Good Torah, Deborah. Thank you. That was really wonderful. Thank you, thank you. Okay. I'm gonna let that, oh, oh yes, I should put the lyrics in the chat. Let me, let me do that now. And thank you all for listening and letting me share that. Thank you, Rabbi. Oh my goodness, you're so welcome. Yeah. Okay, here are the lyrics. Uh, well, there they are, anyhow. Thank you. And I'll let that be our, our uh, conclusion. <laughs> <laughs>